Passing Dimes is over the moon to partner with Betstamp. Betstamp is a mobile app in the sports betting space that shows you the odds from every sports book in one spot. Do you enjoy betting on the NHL, the NBA, the NFL, World Cup, or more? With Betstamp, you can compare the best available odds at one sportsbook versus the worst odds at another sportsbook all in one place. Go to the App Store today and download Betstamp for free and use code DIMES. That's D-I-M-E-S. For a limited time, Betstamp is offering you, a friend of the show, an opportunity to learn more about Betstamp and several sportsbooks where you can get an edge in online sports betting. Message the Passing Dimes Instagram or Facebook account for more information. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. I've attended coaching courses with him. I've tried to steal ideas when he was at Team Ontario, and it's finally good to get him on the show. Maybe a little too late, but finally got him. So today's guest played for the Laurier Golden Hawks before joining the Alberta Golden Bears, where he's a national champion. He was our national team libero for many years while also playing pro in Denmark and Austria. He's joined the coaching ranks where he was the head coach of the Laurier Women Program. He's coached Team Ontario. He's been at Waterloo on both the men's and women's sides, and I believe he's coaching club this year for the KW Preds. Please welcome to the show, Luke Snyder. Luke Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. I'm uh, I'm happy to be here. It's uh, any chance I get to talk volleyball is a good one. Well, sweet man. I, I will cover a lot of topics. We'll try to get to it, but let's take it from the beginning because I've been a big fan of your coaching career. I didn't know you much as a player, but uh, doing some research for the show, CIS national champions, not bad. But uh, let's take it from the top. Where did you grow up, and what other sports were you playing before you got hooked on volleyball? Uh, yeah, so as a, I grew up in, in Breslau, Ontario, which at the time was a you know village of 500 people or less, I think, but it's just outside of Kitchener and has since been largely swallowed up by Kitchener. I played house league hockey growing up. I played uh, some t-ball and fast pitch. Those were like baseball and hockey were probably the two sports I played the most um, early in my career, my childhood. And um the the uh, for for quite a few years nhl player was a pretty um appealing goal for me and i'm not the only one in canada to have that thought and then uh as i was getting into grade seven and eight and early in high school basketball was definitely my favorite i really got into basketball and being nba bound seemed like a better option for me and i started playing volleyball like in school in grade five, I think, but didn't really get serious about volleyball until until high school and arguably not until like grade 12 or something like that. But that's maybe we'll dive into that a little bit more later. Yeah. Was club ball ever an option for you? Like just to preface it for the listeners, I think club volleyball is awesome. And any kid who wants to play, it seems like there's a club in their community. But uh, back in back in our era, like it was there wasn't individual age groups. It was like 14, 16, 18 or intermediate or whatever they called it. And not every region had a team. So did you even know what club volleyball was or was school ball like your competitive outlet for volleyball? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that's a perfect question, because um in a lot of ways, I did not take a, a, a typical volleyball development path. Um, and certainly later in my life, I would say that was still true. Um, but I did start playing club volleyball in grade nine, which at the time I think was um, was a fairly common kind of entry age. But did I know what club volleyball was? No, not <laughs> at all. I had some. I had somebody approach me in, in my like grade nine high school game and said, like, I'm assuming they said something like, hey, club we'd like to invite you out to come try out for club volleyball and 
all I got out of it was like on Wednesday night, there's some people playing volleyball. Dad, can I go play? <laughs> um, you know, and I, uh, you know, there are knitting clubs and book clubs, which are largely just people who share a common interest. And I, I, I'm guessing that I sort of assumed it was the same thing and didn't find out for much until much longer. And I was kind of into it. Oh, this is like a travel rep team because I knew what that was from like my hockey experiences. Or, um, but I had no idea. My parents certainly had no idea. I've laughed. We've laughed uh, with each other many times over. They didn't really know what was going on. But, you know, Luke said, there's volleyball 7 p.m. on Wednesday night. Can you take me there? And thankfully, they said yes. <laughs> and then was that through the Waterloo Tigers? So that was through the Tri-City Volleyball Club that I played oh, nice. for for most of my time, which was... Um, you know, comparable, um, you know, I think it split off from Waterloo Tigers at some point. I'm a little fuzzy on some of that history, but the Waterloo Tigers were still in existence and, and the Tri-City Volleyball Club was running in the same region, um, you know, competing for the same players, essentially. But I had, I got linked into to Tri-City because that's the invitation that showed up after a high school game one day. <laughs> nice. So to jump in ahead there, when you said you started taking it serious around grade 11 or 12, what switched for you? And I, I guess not really knowing how serious club ball was, when did you realize that you could play this at like a post-secondary level? And that was going to be like the, the big league, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I love basketball so much. Um, and so although I was playing club volleyball and I was not playing club basketball. I think basketball was still like what I would have said is my favorite sport, um, certainly through grade 11, um, possibly grade 12 as well. And, but somewhere in that grade 11, 12, and back in the day, OAC, that fifth year of high school in Ontario, um, somewhere, somewhere along the way, I realized, Oh, I'm actually like better at volleyball than I am at basketball. And for me, for me, sport, well, quite frankly, it has always been about winning. Um, I love like that competitive outlet um, has always attracted me as long as I can remember. And the idea of accomplishment in sport was always something that really drove me. And can I make it to the next level? Am I good enough to play at a higher level still was always like burning through me. And it was, so it was in late those later high school years where I where I finally was smart enough to see like okay I'm most competitive in the sport of volleyball um, and and I guess that's the way that I'm going then and it was um, as much about the opportunity as it was maybe about the sport itself at that point. So did you reach out to coaches or coaches asking you like how did you end up at Laurier? Yeah, so. I basically did not get recruited at all um, out of high school. Um, back in those days, and I know you've mentioned this on your pods before, like the clubs, the age division club structure was was different back then. So there was a midget level, which was generally grade nine and ten combined, and then juvenile level, which was generally grade elevens and twelves combined. And then there was a junior level, which above that, which was OAC, that fifth year of high school, and then a year older than that, first year university. And so the Tri-City Volleyball Club was not offering a junior team for um, me and, our, and my teammates when we got to that fifth year. 
Um, and it was Brett Thomas, who was the head coach of the Laurier men's team at that time, who, who, you know, got us all on board for playing, for playing for, for him and for, for that, for that fifth year. So, so it was the Thunderbird volleyball club that it was called, um, that we played for in my last year of high school and Brett, the Laurier coach was trying to get me signed up saying yes to Laurier before even saying yes to playing that, that year of club. And so there was a, there was a regular, um, push and commitment from him throughout that whole year, but not a single other university coach ever talked to me. <laughs> <laughs> now help me with the timeline when you're going through school ball and then at, at university, who were some of the guys you were battling with? Like, are you Sleener's age or who were some of the guys you would have had some good games with? Yeah. Hair younger than that. So Mark Gatto and I are the same age. Um, so we, we played all five, all five years of, of high school, we played on the same club team. Um, so Mark was, Mark was my setter. So that's uh, Mark, you had Mark on not that long ago, yeah. I think. And, um, so, so in terms of local guys, he would be the one who's maybe most, most known, certainly in the Toronto area. And, um, like across the province, like Chris Wolfenden was the same age. Neil Mason was the same age, Rob Jansen. Um, Steve Brinkman was a year younger. Like the, that's, that's sort of the era of that we, that we, yeah, we were playing against all those guys. So with your Laurier club, obviously, uh, you're competitive, you love sport, you're being competitive. What made you want to open up the door and transfer? Like, I'm not sure how common that was at that time. And especially, uh, not to knock the Laurier program, but to go from Laurier to Alberta, uh, like, did Terry take your call right away? Did you have to send a VHS? Like, what was the relationship there to get spotted by uh, the Golden Bears? Yeah, yeah. So we, the Laurier team that that I started with the previous two years had only won, I think, one or two matches throughout that, like, the past couple seasons. And and I came in with a fairly large recruiting class and, and, um, our lineup looked notably different. Um, we added, we added just enough and there were some good players there who, who, um, you know, were, who were really quite excellent players, but we, we added passing, we added setting and, and, uh, I think that made a significant difference. So we actually, in my first year, we actually won, Ontario West back when the OUA was split into two entirely separate divisions. Um, and so we had a lot of success in that, in that first year, um, which was awesome. And, and, um, uh, maybe uh, not expected, I think. And so we ended up, that, that was enough to qualify us for, um, CIS at the time, CIAU nationals, where we actually played against Alberta in the first round and, we lost pretty, pretty straight in a fairly straightforward fashion. Um, but, uh, we had some good success early and in that first year in Laurier and then it just kind of faded away from there a little bit. Um, and, uh, we just never kind of had the same success. There was a lot of player turnover and, um, and coach turnover, a number of coaches throughout that period of time. Um, and while that was going on, I was always a quite a strong student, but I never enjoyed school. And 
sport was always what was, you know, kept me happy going to school. Um, and when the experience was a little less than what I was hoping it to be over the years at Laurier, um, not as competitive as I wanted it to be, then, then all of a sudden school was super not fun. And, and I honestly just was feeling a little burnt out. Um, and so before I made any other decisions about my volleyball future, um, I just, I decided to take a year off. Um, and that was not specifically at the time was it was the intention to to transfer or to um um or to or to or to leave Laurier. I just needed a break, quite frankly. And um and uh and so I just I was I took a year off. I was just working around town. And it was then during that year, um well that year that I my third year was at Laurier. That was my last year at Laurier. And the, I think I was a second team all-star maybe. I don't know. I was, I was an all-star of some kind playing left side back in those days. Um, Cause that was still pre-libero and that was the last year pre-libero. So for the Ontario, there was an Ontario East versus West all-star game that, that year. Um, and the, the libero was coming into had come into FIVB and it was coming into the, to the OUA the following year. So they played the all-star game, including a libero. Um, but there was nobody at the all-star game who had ever played libero before. And, you know, at some point, not long before the match, like probably an hour before the match, Hey, does anybody want to not serve and not play in the front row? <laughs> um, <laughs> there were not a lot of people saying, yes, please. Um, but, um, you know, ball control, I was always an undersized left side hitter and, and, and ball control sort of appealed and it sort of, um, amongst a bunch of bigger, better attackers than me, I seemed like a reasonable thing. So I said, yes. And so that's the first time I ever played libero was in the Ontario university all-star game, um, which would have been in the spring of 1999, I guess. Um, and then my, and then I took a year off after that, um, and and partway through that year off, then I realized somewhere along the lines, I realized, hey, I'm, I understand the transfer rules somewhat. You have to take a year off if you transfer somewhere. Well, wait a minute, I am taking a year off. I am. Oh, I'm. I'm. I suddenly realized I'm more of a free agent than I, than I had previously thought of. Um, and so I started shopping around quite honestly. And I think I said, an, I think I sent an email to almost every program in the country. And, uh, I thought I was going to end up at the university of Saskatchewan for quite a long time. Um, and in the end, it was a bit of a last minute change of course, but, uh, I ended up at the university of Alberta with really no guarantees, just, yeah, we know you're coming you're welcome to come try out. <laughs> um, and, uh, my parents packed, packed me up in the minivan and we drove out to Edmonton and they dropped me off and, uh, and, uh, that started my U of A time. So the first time you saw the campus was the, when you were moving in, like you obviously didn't do a visit or see, talk to Terry in person. It was like a phone call or an email. And then you were, you were in. 
I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> I have to think about that a little bit. Like there were there were there were numerous phone calls, numerous emails, certainly. But yeah, no, I'd never I'd never been on campus before. That's for sure. Um, I knew the team. I'd played against the team. The team that team had you know been on TSN in the national championship finals a few times that I had watched, and like I I had some and I had. I had looked at their roster somewhat closely to to try and guess to see if there'd be room for somebody of my skill set and um but yeah ultimately it was a bit of a bit of a leap of faith that's for sure and I keep on meaning to ask Terry Terry Danlock the 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 coach at the time um and he's still he's still the leader of the program I think um I keep meaning to ask him, at what point, Terry, did you think that I made the team? Because <laughs> this is an ongoing joke that I have with a few people. I don't, I think I was in, I think I was in tryouts until Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like six weeks for sure before somebody actually told me I had made the team. Uh, and I don't know for sure if Terry thinks that as well, or if he just forgot to tell me or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> So I have to know, just to preface it again for the listeners, you're not exaggerating. This position didn't exist, and now you're kind of one of the first ones doing it. But you mentioned earlier you love competing, you love battling, but libero, it's a tough position to describe. I, I find it's almost like a goalie where you can be steady, but you can't like earn points for your team, right? So as a competitive guy, how did you find that where you're kind of like, I just need to pass well. If I don't pass well, we're probably not going to win. I need to get digs, but I'm not going to get like the the rush in men's volleyball of getting a big block or getting a big kill or going back and taking over a match with my serve, right? So how did you feel like you remained a competitive guy without having like an outlet to score points? Yeah, I guess the yeah, that's a that's a good question. I've I've had that question asked to me numerous times in in various forms, but I've I don't think I see the game of volleyball as being solely based off of you know the terminating contact. Um and so, you know, I think you could ask the same question to a setter, like who, who rarely gets the glory when it's the hitter who puts it away or whatever. Um, but, you know, at some point, I guess I, I, I understood the game well enough to, to see my own contribution. The quality of a pass leads to a quality of a set, leads to a quality of an attack. Um, and as you get to higher and higher levels, any dig is a massive victory, right? in men's volleyball and and so if i can dig a ball that somebody else maybe wouldn't have dug well that's a huge advantage and and in internationally when you're you know a couple digs a couple point swings is often the difference between a between winning and losing a match i i never had a i never had a problem feeling like i was not contributing or not not part of it now at the cis level was it a copycat league where, let's say, Alberta plays the libero in five, so everyone thought, okay, libero's playing five because they take out the middle? Was there any discussion around the lib playing in six-back? Like, I'm just wondering how the, the position kind of evolved because you were kind of on the front lines there. So was there discussions with the coaching staff at U of A, whether you play six or five or anything that, like, we take for granted now that you guys are honestly figuring out on the spot? Like, were you the secondary setter? Because they're like, oh, you're the skilled guy. You should take the second ball. Or was the front row middle still the secondary setter? Like, how did this kind of evolve and change the game 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Second, the, the libro as like the secondary setter was not. I mean, I did that sometimes, but it was not directly my role when I first started playing libro at U of A. Um, but I always played in position five, and I'm trying to think like, were there other teams? Like, I think the I think the libro would sometimes end up in position six on other teams, but I think I played. I'm quite sure I played exclusively in five, and that's. Like really interesting evolution of a sport when you have a brand new position that's just sort of introduced uh, at, at some point and all the coaches are you know around the world are scrambling to figure out what to do with that and got a new tool here how do we want to use it and i guess like my my perspective on that has always been that that the importance of a fast tempoed back row attack and the um and eventually what like what became like, you know, today's international pipe set um, basically is like, that's such an important part of a team offense that you just can't afford to have a Libro in six. <laughs> um, and, and so where do you not need a back row attacker? I, you know, it, it's certainly the way the, the game is constructed and, and most often played these days that that is position five. Um, and so to put somebody to put the non-attacker in position five, I, I think you know Terry. Terry had a, Terry, Terry understand, understands the game well. He's well connected uh, in international volleyball as well. So I, my guess is that he was a bit ahead of the curve, perhaps for Canadians in terms of understanding those things and seeing the direction of the game. And so I was always in five, and, and the national team was. Um, was also trying to figure those things out, but uh, internationally, like the, the Libro was in five almost all the time. So I love how you mentioned how you felt you were you were trying out basically till regular season started right around Halloween there. But yeah. uh, I'm curious, how did you feel like you you fit in with the guys? Because as we're talking, I, I finally pulled up uh, a roster here. And were you the only Ontario guy? Like I know uh, Pascal was a Quebec guy, so maybe you guys could laugh at the Alberta guys a little bit, but a very dominant Alberta team, maybe one or two BC guys. But uh, yeah, I think according to this list, you were the only true Ontario guy and you were a senior, right? You weren't like a, a true first year. So how did you just fit in with the Golden Bears right away and feel like you could contribute? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I know the answer to the how of that, um, but, I, but I, I think I did. Um, feedback from from my teammates and my coaches certainly would support that I that I did and and yeah I don't it's uh I've all, I've always said like you know as soon as you when you make a team you have you have instant best friends um and and I've always felt that you know any team that I'm a part of um I'm super happy to be there and we're all there for the same purpose and the same goals and um so um, living in Alberta was a little bit different, I'll say, than 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 my Southern Ontario experiences prior to that. But um, um, I always enjoyed it. I love those guys. Uh, I still do, and we had so many positive experiences. And um, I think I'm a fairly easygoing guy, so I just roll with it. And like, okay, this is you know, here in Alberta, we do this and we drink this and this is how we talk. And I was like, yeah, okay. Sounds good. <laughs> Let's go play some volleyball. <laughs> um, and again, as I'm just kind of finding the roster as we talk, I should have done more research before the show. It lists Richard Schick as one of the coaches. Was that one of his early starts coaching in the CIS? Yeah. So I believe that was his first. I can't, I don't know 
too much of because Richard was playing at U of A not that not too many years before that. Um, I played against Richard Schick. Yeah. Um, my first year at Laurier when we went to nationals, I'm quite sure that Richard was on the other side of the net when we played U of A in that first round. Um, but Richard was there for my second year at U of A. Um, Terry was like on part sabbatical. I believe he was doing a master's program at the time or some kind of um continuing continuing education and so terry took a bit of a back seat and i forget what his official title was but it's kind of like governing overseeing things slash assistant coach but richard was our was our formal head coach um for that for my final my fifth year of eligibility my second year at u of a which was the 2001-2002 season um and yeah, Rich was our Rich was our head coach, and he's the one who um, who ultimately coached us to, to the national championship in that year. Um, and believe me, we're going to talk about stuff other than Alberta. I just want to know if you remember this. Where I, again, I'm looking at the roster, and you got a guy like Pascal who came in and took the league over. He was getting 5.4 kills a set while still hitting 327. But in your year of 0102, when you guys won nationals, I think he only played 21 sets. So did he go down with an injury? Like how deep was your gym or what was the mood when like one of your horses wasn't available? Do you remember that? Did he only play half the year? Or did he get hurt? Yeah. So Pascal was already with the national team prior to, um, uh, prior to, to me ever coming to Alberta. Like, I don't know when he transitioned from junior national team to senior, the, the senior B team versus senior A team. I don't, I don't know the details on that, but he was, he was already heavily um, entrenched in the national team program. And I think it was that year where he was away for the beginning of the year with, with the national team. Um, Pascal, correct me if I'm wrong, but um I think it was away for the be- for the beginning of that year, and then when when he came back, um, yeah, it was it was an interesting year because I think we were sort of we sort of had him slotted in. He was a left side and a right side for for us, um, and and other guys were just kind of rolling and playing well, and he never really quite. Um, wiggled his way back into the starting lineup i think um certainly for the certainly for the second half of that year and it was uh, sandy henderson that was playing right side for us um and it was working and he was having success and and you know obviously richard presumably made that decision to to just to just keep that and so pascal was uh coming off the bench for us now as the the season progressed um were you guys talking national championship? Like obviously a program like Alberta, it feels like they go to nationals every year, even qualifying through that tough Canada West. But uh, what was Terry's style or Richard's style about like, did you write it on a board in the team room and this was going to be a goal? Like, is it something you guys talk about or because you're, you're playing in Canada West, you're honestly just trying to fight for that week's game every single time. Yeah, I could talk for hours about the Can West schedule and what that's like and how it differs from from uh from the oua conference um but the i the the culture that i walked into not just with the u of a men's volleyball team not just with the university of alberta but quite honestly like i felt like it 
I felt it through the whole city. Like there's a, there's a, there's a culture of, of expectation and um, perhaps almost entitlement, but not in a bad way, like in a, like, yes, we deserve to be here. We deserve, we know we're capable of being at a high level and, and that kind of um, messaging and, and attitude, I felt like um, enshrouded the, me, the team and, 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 and the university as a whole. Um, I think the school won five national championships that year or something like that. And in various sports and, um, I've never been able to put that really well into words, but there's a, a bit of an attitude of, of expectation and yeah, why not We're just as good as anyone else? We're probably better. Um, and, and I think that's a really successful, you know, way to way to approach uh, competition. Um, and you have to learn to lose gracefully every once in a while as well. But, uh, but, uh, there's certainly that attitude and, and, um, wouldn't say that there was a lot of, there was no like pin it up on the bulletin board. We are going to, this is our goal and anything less is a failure or anything. There's just a general consensus that, yeah, we're, we're good. Um, and, but we were never the best at the time. Like we were, U of A went on a massive run. Like we won, we won the national championship in 2002 and then U of A was in the finals for like, what nine out of the next 10 years or something crazy like that. Like, um, I'd like to think that we, we built, uh, <laughs> we paved the road that, uh, that let the teams can, um, continue to roll. But there's, um, there's a culture of winning that was, that was there. And I think is, I think is still there. Um, and that has something to do with the coaches and the team. I think the, the school and, uh, and perhaps the city as well. Now, to, to skip ahead to Nationals, you guys play Queens in the first round. Was that any confirmation for you being an Ontario guy and you were kind of shopping around where you wanted to go that, you know, you made the right choice? Like, did it feel good to beat up on some of those Queens guys that maybe you would have played against when you were at Laurier? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the I think it was it was. It was such a big choice for me to to leave home, to leave Ontario, to to leave Ontario volleyball and and make it out there and to, you know, to spend two months or six weeks or whatever it was in tryouts. And it, there was a lot of validation whenever we were able to beat an Ontario team. And there's a little bit of like, um, there'll always probably be a small chip on my shoulder for not... Um, for always being, um, I think I got overlooked plenty, um, in, in not getting recruited and like, quite honestly, like as a coach, I totally get it now. Cause I wouldn't recruit me either probably. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't, I don't hold any like personal grudge at all there, but, um, it was a really validating experience anytime that we were able to win games in general probably but um beating some of the ontario teams that we came up with when i had been passed up by those coaches not once when i was graduating high school but a second time as well when i was um looking around at my options um yeah that that felt good i'm happy to say that <laughs> now uh Take me to what you remember about the final, because it looks like this Winnipeg game was just absolutely crazy going to five. Um, who was hosting nationals that year? If you remember the. So we were. The, yeah. Okay. The, 
um, nationals were at U of A that, that year. And that's actually the only way that we got in because we lost a really tough Can West semifinal, I believe, to Winnipeg. Um, the same team that we faced in the finals then for, for nationals. And, um, it was tight and we thought we were disappointed that we didn't do a little bit better. Um, but if we were, if we hadn't been hosting, we may have been knocked out at that point. Um, we were guaranteed birth because we were hosting, we may have been eligible for a wild card, um, which under the old system was a very convoluted thing. And, uh, um, and so who knows what would have happened there. Um, but yeah, so we, we, we were able to have a pretty successful tournament for nationals. Um, and I believe we won in straight sets against Queens in the, in the first round and then Manitoba in the, in the semis, which was actually like probably the largest, um, upsets that Manitoba team was super good, um, and super talented. And then we had Winnipeg um, as that revenge match in the in in the finals, and um, we had beaten we had beaten Manitoba in the semis the the evening before. And then because that game was televised, the finals then was televised on TSN, and T TSN got to decide when that match got played. And so it was, I believe, it was a 10 a.m. match that oh, wow. played then the following morning. And I had been sleeping like. Four or five hours a night, I swear, all week, because I was just so pumped to be ready to go fight for 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 success. Um, I I was I just remember being so tired that night and praying that I could fall asleep quickly, and then setting that alarm for I don't know what it was six thirty in the morning, probably or something like that, and. All that to lead into this huge match, by far the biggest match of of my career at that point. And and um, I'm pretty sure, Josh, you probably have the scores in front, but I think we won the first set and the third set, um, and it went to five. Um, and uh, that match is a little bit known for having a like sideline scuffle between the two teams as uh, benches were changing sides. Uh, that was partly caught on television and partly not. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, the, the crowd was rocking and, and we had, you know, we had that home court advantage and I think we're enjoying it and feeling it. And it was clearly our weekend because we were, we were all playing great. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I was, I was so excited and all of the last I'd spent like two to three years of my life kind of working towards that moment. Um, and it was not lost on me. It was probably a little too clear in my mind how important this was for validating my past two or three years worth of decisions. Um, and I just remember that whole match just having to scream and I couldn't stop moving or I was just going to start crying quite honestly. Um, and uh made it but so it was a tight in the it was tight in the fifth set then and i think we won maybe 15 12 or something like that um and uh i played the last couple points uh through through some blurry teary eyes that's for sure uh but we <laughs> we pulled it out and it yeah it's it'll always be one of the most exciting uh like uh, that's a that's a top 10 moment of my life for sure i can't uh, 
will be tough to push it out. Now, I, I'm speculating a little bit because I'm just looking at scores, but hearing you describe how they knocked you out of Canada West and then obviously home crowd advantage played a big part where you guys win the first set, but 25-16 in indoor volleyball, that's that's close to a beatdown. Like that one might have not been in doubt for very long. So do you remember just the mood on the bench being like, okay, we won the first set and then you lose 16 in the second set. Like how did you guys keep the wheels from falling off being like, here we go again, they're the better team or they have this guy. Like how did you not panic? Because you guys came back and won 23 lost 23 and then you take down the fifth because again i'm just speculating i didn't watch the match but the score sheet tells me it was a bit of a roller coaster yeah so i i uh, i don't actually remember getting smoked like that in the second set but yeah that is uh, just uh, crushing <laughs> um i we knew it was gonna be a tight match um we the other team was really good too and um and I think we, it was one of those matches where I think just, all, I think all of us on, like on our team, like we were, it felt like we were all very much on the same page. We were all there for a very specific reason. There was no doubt or there was no questioning that, you know, somebody may not care quite enough or that somebody only cares about their own stats or something like that. Like there was none of that. Um, we were all there for the exact same reason and, and we all knew it. And I don't think we ever, I don't know. I don't think I ever felt super confident. Oh yeah, for sure. We're going to win this. Um, but I felt very confident that we were all going to do our darn best to, to, to try to make it happen. Uh, and yeah, that I, I, I don't, I don't remember. I, th I think there was a little bit of a calm confidence that um, that you know some of the leaders on the team were were able to bring, and hopefully, I think I was part of that. And um, and yeah, we were obviously able to hold our hold our composure enough. But it was just tough. You win the first, you lose the second, you win the third, you lose the fourth, like, and then all of a sudden it comes down to fifteen points. And um, I, I I remember feeling like holy cow. This is, this means so much to me personally. The energy in the gym was massive. And I just really hope that we can get it done. <laughs> and it's once the, once the ball starts moving, then it's okay. Like I was, you know, then you're just playing volleyball again. And it's all those times like in timeouts and between sets, like that was the worst having to sit there in your own thoughts was by far the most stressful part of that for me. I just wanted to get out there and start playing again so I could like regain my composure. <laughs> so where does the national team fit into this for you? Uh, did you play national team after university? Was there any overlap between uh, university and national team? Because I know a few guys like Brinkman and Pascal, like they were going back and forth. Did you have that opportunity or was it as soon as you graduated, that's when you joined uh, VC? Yeah, so 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 certainly the latter. I, I I had no sort of connection or exposure to the national team prior to prior to me finishing my university volleyball. Um, I think I I never. I don't think I was the type of player who really um, attracted a lot of attention, um, and and so you know, the, you know I they think that's part of why I. You know, I never got recruited. Um, I never, I never had any interest or a sniff. I, as far as I know, anyways, from from the national team until 
until we uh, until we won university nationals. Um, and uh, I performed pretty well, I think, the year before in Canada West uh, volleyball. But I, I sort of assume and certainly think that um, my performance at nationals was really what opened that door for me. Being on the winning team, like there's value and there's value in knowing how to win, right? Um, that's a Garrett May discussion to have at some point, perhaps. <laughs> for sure. Um, I think that there's plenty of value in, in, and it is something you need to learn um, or can be learned. Um, but, uh, and, and I got a tournament all-star for that, for that national championship. And, and I think that's along with some lobbying from Terry Danilock, I'm sure as well, opened the door for me and I got my invite to, um, to, to, to the national team kind of, you know, training camps, I guess. And, uh, and ultimately what started my path on the national team. Now, uh, you mentioned Wolfenden being an Ontario guy. Uh, I believe he was one of the other liberos in the program. So were you guys kind of friendly when you got there? Were you a competitive guy wanting the spot? Like, what was it like uh, seeing some familiar faces, but knowing that you were in a battle for playing time? Yeah, the liberal position at that time in the national team program was, was, um, was quite volatile, I guess it would be fair to say. Like, when I, when I joined the national team, Chris was, Chris was playing as a left side um as a passing passing left side kind of you know ball control first and chris was an excellent service receiver and but i'm trying to think like dustin reed had had a sniff at 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 libro um i think maybe like bruce edwards maybe even like this is all before i was around um but uh, there were there were a lot of auditions for that position and 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 what by the time i got there they were like it was it was more so me and um and um a few other um cis libros that were that were being considered um and but then every once in a while, like somebody else was given a shot at it too. So like Keith Sanheim, who was around forever and was playing mostly middle in, in, in the past for, for Team Canada, um, played a little bit of, of Libro and, and uh, there was all sorts of um, um, changes and considerations. And, and uh, like I, 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 I say, I think I got cut. Like in my, in my mind, I got cut two or three times from, from the national team, like from, from making a travel roster, like actually being on the team that would actually compete. Um, and I got sent home and out another few times. And, and, um, the, I was often the worst player when I joined a team <laughs> from, from club to, you know, to, to whatever else, like certainly I could, I was always able to sneak my way onto teams and then and like I think my my greatest skill was was improving once I was on the team. Now again, I I'm a volleyball guy, but I love setting up the timeline just for my own understanding. I'm sure some listeners are like, huh, I wonder what was going on there. So your first couple of years, uh, was Stelio the head coach? Because Glenn started in 06, right? So you would have been a Stelio yeah. guy? So I was Stelio Duraco. Yeah, was my was my head coach the entire team I was on the national. 
the, the entire time I was on the national team. Now, can you set the scene for me? And I, I don't want to like say that your era, you know, set the scene and for guys on the national team, they don't understand what you went through. But when we had Fred Winters on the show, he didn't pull any punches being like, we weren't in world league because not because we weren't good enough because we didn't have money. Like the program was in a tough place. There wasn't a lot of competition opportunities. And, and Fred told us straight up. He's like, when you're giving up those 30 or 40 opportunities to play good matches against good teams, he's like, you can't climb the rankings. It wasn't possible. So uh, again, I'm not here to bash the program, but I think Glenn did a great job getting it competitive and getting more matches. But in your era, uh, some of these travel rosters you were playing for, was there a chance to play World League or was it mostly Norseka stuff? Was it other cup series? Like, what was your impression without, I don't want to make it a negative thing here, Luke. I just want to know your impression of what VC was like at that time. Yeah, financially rough is is an extremely fair statement, I think. Um, the, like, I think, I can't remember, like, the... The old World League, I think you had to come up with like a million bucks or something like that. Um, you had to guarantee national television coverage and which, you know, like for the sport of volleyball, sometimes you have to pay the broadcasters to make that happen. Um, and and none of that was happening. And certainly the messaging that we always got was that, you know, the funding's not there. Um, I, there's certainly were lots of stories about... Um, but why the funding was not there and and how we were sort of in the era of the national team where we were attempting to financially recover from previous eras. Um, and I'm not privy to anything more than the rumors and stories that were being told there, but um, I, my, it's, it's, it's my understanding that Volleyball Canada got, got left in pretty rough or was in pretty rough shape just kind of at the time when I was probably showing up. So like that kind of um, 01, 02 kind of, kind of time period and moving forward through like till Glenn started in 06. And I think he probably had to battle some of that still early on as well. Um, but yeah, it was, it was rough. So, so, so our, our, our international scrimmage schedule was extremely limited um, and it seemed like mostly it was just who's willing, what other teams are willing to fly themselves to Winnipeg to, to play a few matches. Um, but yeah, Norseka's and, uh, and, um, Olympic qualifiers, world championship, um, qualifiers and then worlds and, and world cup. Um, and yeah, we were never, we never made it to the Olympics in uh, the era that, that we're talking about, um, so World Cup is probably like our top competition then. Now, was there ever a mood? Like, obviously, the Olympic dream is powerful. And I'm sure guys wanted to. But going through the program, I guess you would have been aiming for, I believe, Greece was 04. Like, did it ever seem like a real possibility that men's indoor was going to have a chance there? Or just because of the funding, you weren't in World League? Like, was there ever going to be a chance to win one of those Olympic qualifiers? Yeah, we felt like we were, that we were close. Um like that we had a chance, certainly, um, you got to go out and, you know, you, you're probably going to beat this team and this team, but you're going to have to also beat this team and this team if you're going to go. And, and, you know, so it comes down to one or two matches and your ability to do it. And we didn't have the ability to do that. And I would support what Fred said then, like in that regard, right? Like those extra world league or now nations league matches, you have to, you have to compete at the highest levels, play the toughest teams in, in meaningful matches to be prepared to, to, to win in matches that you, you need to win. And I, would, I don't think that our team ever really was there. 
Um, so we were, we were close and, and we, we knew we, we could do it, but, uh, you know, looking back, I'm not sure that, like, I don't think we were ever expected to. Now the, the pro thing, I'm curious how that came together. Cause I give a lot of credit, uh, again, to your era who came before, because now I think it started with like Stephen Marr and Riley Barnes when they got like Italy and Russia contracts right out of CIS where that just was not happening in our era. So I'm curious you being a libero and getting an international contract because just by doing this show, I've learned that's probably the toughest contract to get because there's a lot of European clubs who think, oh, we can just change this left side. Who's in his thirties that we want to keep around. We're not going to waste a foreigner spot or, or uh, get an international international visa for a libero so you being a canadian coming out of the cis how did you feel like you got your first contract yeah so without a european passport um man it is tough to you're you're probably quite limited in 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 libero opportunities um i so i as you mentioned i played in denmark and in austria and both of those leagues I, i believe still but certainly were back back in the day um there was no no limit on the number of foreigners that they could that they could dress or or have on their team, um, so so the, so you weren't using up a spot by taking a foreign libro. You were, you know, it, was, it only cost you whatever money you're going to pay to to sign a guy, um, and so but but you know, I think your point is super relevant, and I think the you know where some guy where we started to get guys who were playing at a really high level demonstrating that they're very successful at the cis level going straight into high level pro volleyball situations that is something that was extremely rare i'm not aware that that really ever happened and at the time i think maybe probably north americans as a whole certain and and canadians obviously being part of that they were getting um sort of introductory kind of like get your feet wet kind of contracts when they first when you know when we first were were going over to Europe um and so the Danish league where it was my first year and like the the league was not it's not the highest league uh in Europe by any means and i would say that like um the team that i joined SK Aarhus was was um we ended up winning um the the Danish league um, I would say it was probably competitive to like my, my U of A team. Like it probably would have been reasonably on par. Um, and it would have been a good, good match between the two teams. Um, uh, but that was enough for me to, that was enough, uh, resume, I guess. And along with my team Canada stuff then to, to, to demonstrate that I can handle living in Europe. The culture shock does not ruin me as a volleyball player and I can be a good teammate, even if I'm struggling to speak the language. And, and that was enough to then get me, you know, to, to kind of build and get, get better contracts from there. So, so in, in, in Innsbruck, Austria, then we were, the Austrian league is also sort of, you know, mid-level probably, but um, competing in champions league were, um, you know, we were playing against all the best teams. Plus two beautiful places to live. I think you're in pretty good cities, aren't you? Oh, amazing. <laughs> I, was just back, I was just back in Innsbruck this, this fall for the first time in like 15, 16 years, whatever it was. Um, and that is one beautiful spot. Any volleyball player, if you have a chance to go play in Innsbruck, do it. It's amazing. 
Now, I'm looking at the clock. I don't think we're going to get to your coaching career, which means you're just going to have to come back on. But I, I do have a few minutes here that I want to go down the rabbit hole about the libero position because I, I think it's, it's fascinating that you were kind of at the front end here. So uh, as a coach, I think one of the easiest strategies we could agree on is like, let's target position one. But the libero is there for three rotations, right? So as a libero, did you take pride in your passing? Because I think if that ball sprays behind the setter, then I, I think... More often than not, a youth club team is out of system as soon as the setter has to backtrack, right? So what would you encourage a, a libero to do to make sure they can nail that pass and keep it in front of the setter? Or what were some tricks that you did that uh, maybe teams didn't want to target you because you were so good at receiving? Yeah, I think the, oh, Josh, that is, that is <laughs> not, that's a, that's a medium length answer, uh, question and a very long answer, but the, the, the manipulation of your platform is something that I don't think is is particularly well taught in Canada um, and, and not introduced early enough, in my opinion, as well. And so simple, you know, if you're passing in one, you need your and you want to put the, you want to get make sure the balls and you pass in front of the setter. Well, your right shoulder probably needs to be higher than your left and you you need to be directing that ball back to the middle of the court. And um as simple as that sounds, there's a lot of skill and precision and practice required to to do that regularly. So, so as I got better, my platform manipulation using my shoulders is uh, to do that just became better and better. And I think a lot of my my skills and success came from from becoming you know, quite refined in in that aspect of the game. Um, Anytime that you pass well, then you you know you're discouraging the other team from passing to you. So I found that like my job was like how much how much of position six can I take away on service receive while still protecting my own sideline uh, to my right, um, and the more I can take away responsibility from the other passers who are, who then have to go hit, uh, the more we can squish everyone over to the left, um, the more the better job I've I've done. So. Um, there's, yeah, the, the, a lot of, a lot of focus on, on footwork and, and body angles, but, but I think particularly shoulder, shoulder manipulation and manipulating the platform is just so critical in all, from all positions of the court and service Eve. Um, and yeah, that's, I can, I can be in the gym and teach and talk about that for a long, long time. <laughs> Now, with you saying you want to protect, and obviously I think that's how the libero position has evolved, like when maybe when you're receiving in six, you want to protect the front row outside, but how did you communicate that? Because obviously the, the guys you're playing with, whether I'm just guessing, but on the national team, maybe it was like a Terry Martin or a Dan Lewis or some other outsides. How are you telling these guys to squeeze over when they're just like, dude, I'm as good as a receiver as you are. Like I want to pass versus, Hey, you can attack. I can't, I'm going to pinch you out. Like, how do you have those conversations where the libero needs to be a little bit of a leader and you're, you're not squeezing somebody out because they're bad. You're squeezing them out because of the the sequence of them being an attacker. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel like, most attackers, particularly with it, when they're in the front row, they're not eager to pass. They're quite <laughs> happy to get out and 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 get ready to terminate. The the so if 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 at the point where those guys had had trust and faith in me, I don't think that that was a huge issue. You have to demonstrate and earn that, obviously. Um, but a lot of the time, like as a libero, I saw my job as as taking the balls that the other guys didn't. So on a tough seam, on a tough seam serve, like sometimes passes freeze, right? They get stuck. They don't, 
they're not able to to react soon enough or 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 enough and and uh it's i i saw it was my job to to, to take all of that you know if the if if my left side passer freezes and doesn't take a ball that maybe they should have taken then it's my job to fill that seam regardless of whether we had called left seam or right seam ahead of time it's my job to to pick that ball up and and i always i always told them like listen if it's if it's borderline let me take it i'd rather pass a two than to have you pass a two because you've got other things that need to need to be done and if i go down to the floor to pass a ball that's not really much of an issue unless i'm getting in somebody's way right where you put a front or left side down on the floor like that's a major issue um and so anytime that i could take away some some stress on on those attackers i, I think the, the position of labor has to do that at high at high levels that is part of your job is to free up your attackers now, is that something you've brought into your coaching? Because that's something that irks me when I coach indoors. Somebody gets aced in the seam and they look over and they say, oh, it was seam right. And I go, I don't care what seam it is. That's a team point. I don't care if it's left or right. We just got scored on and that's a problem. So maybe you both need to go for the ball and we can overlap. Like, what's your philosophy on the, the seams in reception? Yeah, I think so. Like, I've said this before to, to different people and I, I, I still believe it. Like, the left seam, right seam concept shifts where the seam between two players actually is but there's still a there's still a gray area somewhere between those two players so if you're not if you're not saying left seam or right seam you might presume that that gray area is is exactly between the two players like halfway halfway between the two players where there's that conflict zone right where it could be you or it could be me that takes it but if you if you say left seam then it doesn't remove that gray area it just pushes that gray area further to the left right where it might be me it might be you it's now just further to the left in that in that seam as opposed to perfectly in the middle so um there's you know yeah like you said there's there's always a need for communication there's always a need to be backing up and helping out your teammate um and if you're calling out left seam, then the conflict zone, that gray area, is in a different place within that seam. But the conflict zone always exists. The conflict zone always exists. And, oh, we called, we called left seam is never an excuse to watch a ball drop on the floor. <laughs> Uh, one other libero thing I want to ask you about uh, your U of A days. The stats say you were averaging three bigs a set, which I think is, is pretty astounding. That's awesome. Uh, I think one of the biggest myths in our sport is let's just funnel the ball at the libero. Let's funnel the ball where let's just do the math at the level you're playing with. I think if an attacker knows they have a free lane, the attacker beats the defender nine times out of 10. Like there's guys we just can't dig if they have the free lane. Right. So how did you guys kind of perform either with the national team or U of A or some of your pro teams where, yes, we're going to funnel and you're going to get in the way of the ball, but we're not going to let the attacker know that he is a free alley to come light you up, right? Ah, yeah, good question. The, I think, I'm, 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 maybe I'll answer your question indirectly here, Josh. Feel free to ask it again or clarify <laughs> if you don't like the direction I go in. The, I think I was always a good defender. I, 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 I was more elite in my defending and, and eventually became a 
a good service receiver as well. I think my service receiver was behind my defense skills when I first joined the national team or like, or in my university days. Um, I think one of the things I've been good at for quite a while is, is understanding the game, reading the play and getting hit by volleyballs. Um, and I played, I played defense a lot like a hockey goalie might defend the net. I think, um, your job is to get hit. And certainly I was never, never afraid of that and, and, uh, didn't shy away from that. Um, but, uh, I, it's one of the things that I can't, can't explain with logic very well, but I, I seem to be good at getting hit by the ball. Um, and there's a lot of things that go into that and I can talk about the technical aspects of that in, in, in detail, but reading the play, understanding the relationship between the set, the attacker, the attacker and the block, the attack and the block and the defender. Um, those are, those are things that I, I, well, I think we can all improve and get better and better at as, as volleyball players. And I think I got to a level that was, that was, that was quite high. Um, in in the university days when I was playing, I would say like there was not quite as much emphasis on terminating the play as there is now in in, in university volleyball. So there was there was there were plenty of hard attacks, um, hard attacks, not hard attacks. <laughs> um, There's plenty of of velocity and 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 power, but I would argue probably a little bit more now. So I think in my in my first year at U of A, there was a, for a good chunk of the season, I think I was averaging five, five digs of sets. Um, and I'd love to say that, I, like, I will, I will give myself a small pat on the back for that because I think that was an accomplishment and I think it did lead the country that year, but I don't know if that's all that realistic, you know, in, if, I, if, if anyone's, you know, seeking to accomplish that in university volleyball now, I think that would be a lot tougher to do. For sure. For sure. I think the issue I have with the concept of funneling is let's say you're, you're at a, a team Canada scrimmage and we're going to give Paul Durden five squares down the line because we're going to funnel him to hit it at you. I'm just saying Paul Durden on an open net, five squares, he's probably going to hit the ball too hard for you to dig. There has to be doubt of him getting blocked or there has to be a certain movement, right? So uh, if that's what we're agreeing with on the funnel, I, I will move on to my next question is how are you staying relaxed when your attitudes to get hit by the balls? Because obviously when a youth athlete is, is coming in, they get, they tense up, right? And if you tense up, you're basically as good as a backboard and that ball's just going to hit you and deflect versus you're turning that into a dig. So how are you stepping in and maybe maybe your mind is tense, maybe your core is tense, but your arms are pretty loose, your body's pretty loose, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I have such a clear memory of Terry Daniluk telling me I'm like too tense. Um, <laughs> and, and it took me like another six months, I think, before I fully understood like what he meant by that and what, what the advantage, disadvantage of that was. Um, but it was, it was a conscious effort to learn that skill um, that you have to stay loose and loose is much faster that, that, that um, brace yourself for a hard hit leaves you frozen and stuck most, uh, most often I find with a lot of athletes and certainly, certainly me. And, and there was a conscious effort and learning to, to be quick, to stay loose and, 
and 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 preparation. So if you have your hands down at your side, you you have to move your arms or hands a lot to get your arms out to dig the ball. And at the international level, you you don't have nearly enough time to do that. So what do your arms need to look like ahead of time? What do your feet need to look like ahead of time? How soon before you need to plant your feet in order to be able to make a reaction? Um, and is there time to make a move between the ball being attacked by the contacted by the attacker and you actually dating the ball? Um, there's probably not enough time to take a full step. That's for sure. Um, and and so learning how to how to pre- defense is so much about preparation um, and and uh, and and being loose and not tense is certainly part of that. Well, man, this has been awesome. Like I said, you'll have to come back on because I don't think we've covered half your stories yet. But uh, I do want to finish with one more story if you're kind enough to just give us a laugh. So you've played at the highest level, you've coached at the highest level, but something odd or unique must have happened along the way. So I was hoping you could just give us a laugh before we let you go. Oh, so the uh, there are so there the best stories are ones that you just you can never share. They're either <laughs> they're either not mine to tell or they're just not to tell. Period. But. Um, one of the one of the off the court highlights um, for me was when I was playing at Laurier actually, and that was that was in my my first year. And we did we took a as a as the Laurier volleyball team we took a road trip to California um, for a series of exhibition games, and um, and that was it was fun. It was a lot of driving, and uh, um, but a great great group of guys and. One of the things that we did though while we were down there is we we uh, we lined up to get tickets to go see the prices right. <laughs> uh, and so 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 that that in, in itself was was pretty fun. Like my my grandparents would have been pretty pumped for me to 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 go see the prices right. And so you get yeah uh, so so you, you wait in line you, if you, if you're if you're early enough you, you get a ticket and you're you're allowed in then the the producer interviews every, each every person who goes into that into that uh, studio for like 5 seconds um and you have a chance to like make some impression in hopes of getting the call come on down right to uh, hopefully listeners know the prices right game show um and so, but I, I, I've watched enough Prices Right to know that that when a big group comes to the show, there's there does seem to be it does it does often seem to be that one of those from that group does does get the call. So we were pretty confident that somebody would would get the call. Um, and uh, and so, sure enough, it was certainly not me because we already talked about me not standing out a lot. Um, but Ryan Brown, shout out Ryan. Ryan is like six four, flaming red hair, super loud and energetic guy. Uh, he got called. Ryan Brown, come on down. And uh, it still exists in video evidence somewhere. But the sh- the the short the short version is the twelve or so of us who are still in the audience screaming our lungs off to coach Ryan or help Ryan get through this um bidding on like grocery items and stuff like that um he 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 got up on stage um and then he got to spin the wheel um uh, for a chance to go to the showcase showdown which is the big final grand prize opportunity at the end 
And so, so Ryan spins the wheel, he launches it, it goes, spins it like, you know, two or three times through. Um, but eventually, I, I can't remember exactly. I think uh, the person, you had to beat somebody else, right? So you have to get it as close to a dollar as possible. So I think somebody else had like, it's maybe like 85 cents or something like that. So he had to, he had to beat 85 cents. And so he well, spins it. And I don't remember what the numbers exactly, but I think he spun like 60 cents or something like that. And so you, when you get, you get up to two spins, so he gets to spin again and it's like ticking and ticking. If you go over a dollar, you're, you're, you're out. So he gets to like 50 cents. Oh, that's too much. 60 cents again. No, I can't do that. And it just ticks over into 25 cents. So he's now at 85 cents tied with the other person. And so he, so they have to do a spinoff then. So who's going to go to the finals <laughs> down to these two people. And so I believe that it's Ryan who spins first. You get one spin and, and sudden death with the other person too. Whoever, whoever gets the highest. So Ryan spins another huge spin. Tick, 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 tick just clicks on to 85 cents again, I think. And then it clicks one more time, 15 cents. <laughs> he, he spun 15 cents in that one spin spin off. And we're like, oh, okay, it was a good run. Well, that was fun. Uh, and then the other person spins was like, there's only like, there's a got to be like a 98% chance. <laughs> just spin the wheel and you're going to win. So the person spins. Tick, 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 tick. It hits 15 cents and then like ticks just two more. And like, I, I don't remember which it is, but like there's two green squares are the spots on that wheel. And after 15 cents, there comes like a five or a 10 cents. And that second person got, yeah, that five <laughs> or 10 cents. We explode. This is as much drama as you can have in the prices, right? Almost. This is this is huge. And our and then Ryan wins, so he gets to the showcase showdown. Um, in the showcase showdown, you get to bid on like a massive group of prizes, and so we're screaming out numbers. And the uh, the the there's a truck, there's like the car, there's a vacation or something like that. Anyway, so he uh, we shout out some number that he bids, and it turns out he's way under like by like twelve thousand dollars i think or something like that and the other person has bid for their for their package and whoever's closer wins without going over reminder of the rules of prices right <laughs> and so yeah ryan i think i think it was like ten thousand dollars at least that he was under so i was like oh this is again thanks for coming out kind of territory um and then bob barker the host reads out the price for the other person's um, you know, package value, and the that other contestant went over by like a few hundred dollars, <laughs> and so Ryan is the champion, the ultimate showcase showdown winner of the Price Is Right. We storm the stage. Ryan's up in the in the back of the pickup truck that he's just won two hundred and. 30-ish pound Ryan Brown jumping up and down, just destroying this truck. And the producers are trying to grab him and get him to come down. And it's just all chaos. And I have no idea what happened ever since. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a really fun moment for, for us. And uh, we still talk about it. Amazing. Yeah, I think that's our first Price is Right story. That's, that's so cool. And like 
the joy of that. Like, I'm sure it doesn't match winning a national championship, but uh, I think it's got to be close when that uh, final ring goes over or he gets the under. Like, the, those are some big pops you can get oh, in Prices Right. That was big drama. <laughs> <laughs> big drama. And, and winning is winning, whether it's sports or Prices Right. 100%. So Hundred percent. Well, man, thanks so much for coming on and sharing all that you did. Like I said, we'll have to get you back on because we haven't covered half the stuff. But uh, for now, this is good. And thanks for giving us so much time. Thanks for having me, Josh. <laughs>